And I'll just give you one example that shows you the difference between him and a king, which is the Constitution says there can be no titles of nobility. So while the president can name his son baron, he can't make him a baron. Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. Taylor, what do we have up for today? So in this episode, we're listening to the House Judiciary Committee's impeachment inquiry hearing. And this one features several Democratic and Republican lawmakers and four witnesses who are law professors. And we're talking about like Stanford, Harvard, George Washington, and so on. Now, you have three witnesses here who are sympathetic to the Democratic cause, and they are Noah Feldman, Pamela Carlin, and Michael Gerhard. And one witness, Jonathan Turley, who is there to agree with the Republicans and whose past appearances include those at the conservative Federalist Society. Now, what you're going to hear is the Democrats asking their questions mainly to the first three. And the Republicans are going to be directing all of their questions to the fourth. And then both sides will be asking the remaining law professors to refute what the other ones have said. Now, before we get to the first clip, we'd like to invite you to consider supporting the show. We have a Patreon page which is set up where you can get access to exclusive content, and that will help us to invest even more in expanding the show. Are you a friend of the pod? And if you are, check out the link in the show notes or on our website and support the show today. Now, in this first clip, we're going to be listening to the Democrats' majority counsel pre-framing the hearing and setting up a theme in terms of what their witnesses have to say about whether President Trump is impeachable. Let's take a listen to this. Abuse of power and bribery, obstruction of Congress, and obstruction of justice. Professor Feldman, what is abuse of power? Abuse of power is when the president uses his office, takes an action that is part of the presidency, not to serve the public interest, but to serve his private benefit. And in particular, it's an abuse of power if he does it to facilitate his re-election or to gain an advantage that is not available to anyone who is not the president. Sir, why is that impeachable conduct? If the president uses his office for personal gain, the only recourse available under the Constitution is for him to be impeached because the president cannot be, as a practical matter, charged criminally while he is in office because the Department of Justice works for the president. So the only mechanism available for a president who tries to distort the electoral process for personal gain is to impeach him. That is why we have impeachment. Professor Carlin, do scholars of impeachment generally agree that abuse of power is an impeachable offense? Yes, they do. 
Professor Gerhardt, do you agree that abuse of power is impeachable? Yes, sir. I'd like to focus the panel on the evidence they considered and the findings in the Intelligence Committee report that the President solicited the interference of a foreign government, Ukraine, in the 2020 U.S. presidential election. Press Professor Feldman, did President Trump commit the impeachable high crime and misdemeanor of abuse of power based on that evidence and those findings? Based on that evidence and those findings, the President did commit an impeachable abuse of office. Professor Carlin, same question. Same answer. And Professor Gerhardt, did President Trump commit the impeachable high crime and misdemeanor of abuse of power? We three are unanimous, yes. Professor Feldman, I'd like to quickly look at the evidence and the report. On July 25th, President Trump told the president of Ukraine, and I quote, I would like you to do us a favor, though. And he asked about looking into the Bidens. Was the memorandum of that call relevant to your opinion that the president committed abuse of power? The memorandum of that call between the two presidents is absolutely crucial to the determination, to my determination, that the president abused his office. And did you consider the findings of fact that the Intelligence Committee made, including that, and again, I quote, the president withheld official acts of value to Ukraine and conditioned their fulfillment on actions by Ukraine that would benefit his personal political interests? Yes. In making the determination that the president committed an impeachable offense, I relied on the evidence that was before the House and the testimony. And then when this report uh, was issued, I continued to rely on that. Sir, did you review the following testimony from our ambassador to Ukraine, Ambassador William Taylor? To withhold that assistance for no good reason other than help with the political campaign made no sense. It was it was counterproductive to all of what we had been trying to do. Uh, it was illogical. It could not be explained. It was crazy. Yes, that evidence underscored the way that the president's actions undercut national security. Professor Feldman, will you please explain why you concluded that the president committed the high crime of abuse of power and why it matters? The abuse of power occurs when the president uses his office for personal advantage or gain. That matters fundamentally to the American people because if we cannot impeach a president who abuses his office for personal advantage, we no longer live in a democracy. We live in a monarchy or we live under a dictatorship. That's why the framers created the possibility of impeachment. So here we get the majority counsel. So this is the lawyer that's working for the Democrats here. Asking our first witness, Noah Feldman, he's a Harvard Law School professor, about the traditions of the presidency and sort of the constitutional backing of sort of the Democrats' case. And what we've got here is, you know, him coming out very methodically, walking through all of the steps of a thought process that would lead toward impeachment. So he asks each question one by one, very directly, very confidently, and, you know, with a very matter-of-fact tone. 
and sort of tease up the questions for Noah to respond with, you know, just as matter of fact, just as, as authoritatively right back. It sort of puts this whole uh, committee hearing on a very uh, solid authoritative stance, you know, right towards, uh, you know, the, 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 the beginning where the council can start the, the questioning. Now, this is important because a lot of listeners to these hearings are going to be maybe tuning in and expecting a very partisan and rancorous back and forth. And what this does here is it allows the Democrats to, uh, to frame this whole thing as a nonpartisan, just-the-facts kind of uh, examination. And it really adds a lot of weight to what the Democrats are doing here, and especially in the tone and the manner in which the questions are asked and answered. Yeah, we listen to the majority council here starting off and building a case, building a foundation, saying, okay, we're going to go step by step. We're going to walk people through this. What is abuse of power? Why is that impeachable conduct? Do scholars of impeachment agree, notice how they're setting up something here, that abuse of power is impeachable? So they're walking them through it step by step, and then it's, did the president... Once you've established that foundation, did the president commit the impeachable high crime of abuse of power? And just notice the languaging here, where what's repeated is this idea of impeachable. It is abuse of power. It is a high crime. So calling him a criminal now, that becomes something that um, the Democrats are going to be doing quite a lot, and the Republicans are going to be really doing the opposite. They're going to make it so he did nothing wrong. This was just a normal course of doing business and so on. So we hear statements here like findings of fact, the findings of fact that the intelligence community made. Now, why is that important? Well, because you're going to hear the Republicans talk again and again about how there are no facts, that we can't agree on the facts, that we do not have fact witnesses to support this, and basically everything that is happening is just made up. So when we hear the majority counsel here starting off with these questions, he is really framing this whole idea about what is going to happen at the outset. So let's remember that Democrats chose certain professors as witnesses that they pretty much already knew would be in support of impeachment. Now, Turley, who isn't questioned here, and we're going to listen to in the next clip has a different viewpoint on this. He has a different you know, way of thinking about it. But by stating these conclusions so vigorously at the outset, the majority council is making it hard for the Republicans to argue with legal scholars at top universities. So yes, you know, uh, Jonathan Turley is a professor at George Washington, um, but you have a professor at Harvard, you've got a professor at Stanford, you've got a professor at UNC who are all saying the opposite thing from what this one person is saying. And so it, it's much easier to look at him as simply an outlier um, among those perhaps more elite universities. So in this next clip, what we're going to be listening to is an exchange between Jim Collins and Jonathan Turley. And what you want to listen for here is how Turley is given a lot of free reign to kind of answer this. In fact, before this section right here where you're going to be listening to, 
Jim Collins basically just says to Turley, you know, why don't you just tell us anything you disagreed with and just kind of talk about that for a while? Now, think about what that says about the type of witness that Turley is. Just kind of talk for a while about everything you disagreed with so far. Um, Collins just gives him that free reign. But then we're going to be listening to this part right afterward where Collins starts to create some of the framing of his own and what he perceives to be the ideas. So let's take a listen to this clip. The, the transcript of the call release, the things that have been released to the Mullers, we go back through this, there has been you know, uh, work in progress by this administration. I think the interesting point that I want to talk about is two things. Number one, Congress's abuse of its own power, which has not been discussed here, even internally, where we have had committees not willing to let members see uh, transcripts, not being willing to give those up under the guise of, of impeachment or you shouldn't be able to see them, although the rules of the House were never invoked to stop that. What we're seeing here, and I want to hit, hit something else before we move on to something else, is the timing issue that you've talked about here. Again, I, I believe we talked about this with the Mueller report. We talked about this with everything else. This is one of the fastest, you know, you know, we're on a train. I said this earlier. We're on a, a clock. The clock and the calendar are seemingly dominating this. Is irregardless of what anybody on this committee, and especially members not of this committee, to think about what we're actually seeing of fact witnesses and people moving forward. We don't have that yet. So the question becomes: Is an election pending when facts are in dispute? And you may have mentioned this. This is one in which the facts are not unanimous. There's not universal. There's not even bipartisan agreement on the facts and what they're. Uh, what they lead to, especially when there's exculpatory evidence that has been presented, not in the Schiff report, but in other reports. Does that timing bother you from a historical perspective, not only in the past, but moving forward as well? Yeah, fast and narrow is not a good recipe for impeachment. That's the case with Johnson. Narrow was the case with Clinton. They tend not to survive. They tend to collapse in front of the Senate. Impeachments are like buildings. There's a ratio between your foundation and your height. And this is the highest structure you can build under the Constitution. You want to build an impeachment? You have to have a foundation broad enough to support it. This is the narrowest impeachment in history. You could argue with Johnson. Uh, Johnson might actually be the fastest impeachment. Johnson actually was, what happened to Johnson was actually the fourth impeachment attempt against Johnson. And actually, the, the record goes back a year before. They laid that trapdoor a year before. So it was not as fast as it made it out, it, it might appear. Let me, and again, let's go back. To, I want to go back to something else. And you talked about bribery. And I'm, uh, uh, Mr. Taylor's going to address a good bit of that. But I want to go back to something that you talked about. Because it really bothers, I think, the, the perception out there of what's going on here in the disputed uh, transcript, being that, you know, the call has been laid out there, the president said, I wanted nothing for this. There's all this exculpatory evidence that was not presented in the last 45 minutes. But there is one thing that's interesting, is, and it's been reported in the mainstream media, and it goes back to your issue of does crimes matter or, does, or what this definition is, is that House, uh, our majority initially accused the president, and they kept saying quid pro quo, and we still hear it as we go through. But then, as reported, they used a political focus group to determine whether the phrase polled well. And apparently it didn't poll well, so they agreed to change their theory of the case to bribery. Does that not just feed into more of what you're saying about how we're actually the crime matters and that facts do matter in a case like it, or at least should matter? It does. There's a reason why every past impeachment has established crimes. And it's obvious. It's not that you can't impeach on a non-crime. You, you can. In fact, non-crimes have been part of past impeachments. It's just that they've never gone up alone or primarily in, as the basis of impeachment. That's the problem here. If you prove a quid pro quo, 
that you, you might have an impeachable offense. But to go up only on a non-criminal case would be the first time in history. So why is that the case? The reason is that crimes have an established definition in case law. So there's a concrete, independent body of law that assures the public that this is not just political, that this is a president who did something they could not do. You can't say the president is above the law if you then say the crimes you accuse him of really don't have to be established. I think that's the problem right now that many members of this House, members of this body, and especially the American public are looking at, that if you say he's above the law, but then you don't define it or you define the facts to whatever you want to have, that is the ultimate railroad that everybody in this country should not be afforded. Everyone is afforded due process. Everyone is afforded the process to actually make their case heard. That's the concern that I have in this committee right now. And we've already seen it voted down that we're not going to look at certain fact witnesses. We're not even been promised other hearings in which this committee and in the words and the concerns that echoed almost 20 years ago from the chairman, where he was, did not want to take the advice of another body or entity giving us the Judiciary Committee a report and then acting as a rubber stamp if we didn't do this. Just as a reminder, it was almost two and a half weeks before the discussion of this kind of a hearing back then, before the hearing actually took place. These are the kind of things that as timing goes, I think the, the, the obvious point here is that timing is becoming more the issue because, they're con because of the concern has been stated before about elections. They're more concerned about trying to fit the facts in to what the president supposedly did, presumably did, and make those hypotheticals stick to the American public. The problem is their timing, the definition of crimes, the definition of the fact that bribery as defined by the Supreme Court is not making their case. It's not fitting what they need to do. The issue that we have to deal with going forward is why the rush? Why do we still not have the information from the uh, Intelligence Committee? Why is the IC Inspector General's report from the IC Committee being withheld, even in a, non -class in a classified setting? These are the problems that you have now highlighted and I think that need to be, and this is why the next 45 minutes and the rest of the day is going to be uh, applicable, because both sides matters. And at the end of the day, this is a fast impeachment, the fastest we're seeing, based on disputed facts, on crimes or disturbances that are made up with the facts to fit each part. With that, I'm going to turn it over to my counsel, Mr. Taylor. So there we hear Collins giving us his really quick summary. It's the fast impeachment, the fastest we've ever seen, made on disputed facts, and the rest of which is just made up. And this is how he's going to continue to proceed here. Of uh, There's nothing real. There is nothing that we can agree on. And because there isn't consensus, because it isn't unanimous about what the president did, then that is seen to be equivalent as saying that he did nothing. That's a little playing loose with the facts, I think, and playing loose with the logic of the situation. So you hear here that how Jonathan Turley is really acting here as an ally of all of the Republican talking points. Now, early on in the hearing, Turley makes a, in his opening statement, says that he did not vote for Trump and you shouldn't hold that against him. Um, but he also says that he has been, quote, friends for a long time with Attorney General Bill Barr. And, you know, it gives you a little bit of an idea of his politics, where he stands, you know, on this. And even though we can try to pretend that this is not influenced politically, obviously the witnesses on the Democratic side are there because of their own political beliefs and, you know, at least in part and as it is with Jonathan Turley. And so you see that these law professors want to talk about the high-minded ideals 
but they also want to have some influence in the real-world political process. So Turley here wants to ascribe blame to the impeachment happening too quickly, but he isn't taking into account the political realities of the situation. He's just saying, well, it's happening too quickly, and because of that, it's not good. Not considering that perhaps that if it doesn't happen quickly, it's not going to happen at all. And we hear then Collins coming in to really you know, stand on his points and, you know, talking about the clock and the calendar and that the facts are not unanimous. There's not universal, um, especially when there's exculpatory evidence, you know. So Collins and the Republicans want to keep coming back to this idea that there are no real facts and that everything that has been presented isn't really completely true. And he gives us a narrative to support that. You know, they kept saying quid pro quo. We kept hearing it. Notice how he's using the past tense there. They said this in the past. And what he's implying then is that they said that and it wasn't true. A sneaky little persuasive trick there. He put what someone said in the past, we kept hearing it, and he implies that because that is the past, that it isn't now, it isn't real. And then he builds it up of this idea of what happened. Well, they did a focus group, and it didn't poll well, so then they changed the theory of the case to bribery. So notice how he ascribes a motivation here to what the Democrats did, even though he probably wasn't physically there. So the thing to keep in mind here with this fourth witness is that he, of course, was invited by the Republicans, and his sort of goal here is to be that person that injects doubt into the entire thing. So as Taylor said, what he's doing here is answering very favorably to the Republicans and agreeing with the alternative theories that Collins puts up here and sort of allows them to continue and gives them a little bit of credence here uh, and plays into Collins' narrative um, that the Democrats are out to get the president. And so, you know, the the big thing to keep in mind here is that uh, that Turley is going to keep on going back to this idea that he didn't vote for Donald Trump, but still thinks that it's too premature to be indicting, to be uh, convicting him, and uh, wants this whole impeachment process to go much slower and more deliberately. And what that does there is that it makes him a lot more favorable to people who might be skeptical of the impeachment hearing all around, because he's not saying, no, Trump is not guilty at all. He's just saying, no, like we should slow things down and take our time. And yeah, these things might be bad, but are they that bad? We should think about it some more. And so that's a much more reasonable position and makes it a lot more amenable. Because think about it, all Trump needs to do here and all the Republicans need to do here is avoid Donald Trump being impeached or to avoid a really embarrassing partisan impeachment proceeding. And what they're able to do here is have him provide that way out and provide a, a an alternatively credible and sensible position that a lot of people can latch on to to get the Republicans what they need, which is more doubt injected into this entire hearing. And so that's what you're hearing from from Turley 
and Collins and the other Republicans here. Now, in this next clip, we're going to be listening to Sheila Jackson Lee, who is a Democrat representing Texas's 18th district. And she's going to be really going back to and asking questions of the witnesses of how can they compare what Donald Trump is doing now to what the framers of the Constitution saw as abuses of power or overreaches by kings at the time. And you're going to notice some interesting little persuasive devices here where um, you're linking what he is doing to a broader narrative of what abuse of power really means. And then she's going to be using this idea in this clip to create even more framing around this idea that, of course, we should impeach the president because here are all of the facts laid out, you know, really nice and neat for you. So let's listen to this exchange and then we're going to break it down after. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for yielding. Professor Gerhardt said, if what we are talking about today is not impeachable, then nothing is impeachable. I'm reminded of my time on the House Judiciary Committee during the 1990s impeachment and as well a number of federal judges. I was guided then not only by the facts, but by the Constitution and the duty to serve this nation. I believe as we greet you today that we are charged with a sober and somber responsibility. So Professor Carlin, I'd like you to look at the intelligence volume where hundreds of documents are behind that in the Mueller report. Professor Carlin, you studied the record. Do you think it is, quote, wafer thin? And can you remark on the strength of the record uh, before us? So obviously it's not wafer thin. Um, and the strength of the record is not just in the uh, September, I, I mean, the July 25th call. I think the way you need to ask about this is, how does it fit into the pattern of behavior by the president? Because what you're really doing is you're drawing inferences here. This is uh, about circumstantial evidence as well as direct evidence. That is, you're trying to infer, did the president ask for a political favor? And I think this record supports the inference that he did. What comparisons, Professor Carlin, can we make between kings that the framers were afraid of and the president's conduct today? So kings could do no wrong because the king's word was law. And contrary to what uh, President Trump has said, Article 2 does not have, give him the power to do anything he wants. And I'll just give you one example that shows you the difference between him and a king, which is the Constitution says there can be no titles of nobility. So while the president can name his son baron, he can't make him a baron. <laughs> Thank you. The founding, <laughs> the founding father, George Mason, asked, shall any man be above justice? And Alexander Hamilton wrote that high crimes and misdemeanors mean the abuse or violation of some public trust. As we move quickly, Professor Feldman, you have previously testified that the president has abused his power. Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. What do you think is the most compelling evidence in this impeachment inquiry that would lead you to that? The phone call itself of July 25th is extraordinarily clear to my mind in that we hear the president asking for a favor that's clearly of personal benefit rather than acting on behalf of the interests of the nation. And then further, further from that, you, further, further down the road, you ha we have more evidence 
which tends to give the context and to support the explanation for what happened. Professor Collin, how does such abuse affect our democratic systems? Having foreign interference in our election means that we are less free. It is less we, the people, who are determining who's the next winner than it is a foreign government. I think it is fair to say that the president's actions are unprecedented. Uh, but what also strikes me is how many Republicans and Democrats believe that his conduct was wrong. Let's listen it is to... improper for the president of the United States... Listen to the colonel. It is improper for the president of the United States to demand a foreign government, investigate, investigate, foreign government a investigate a U.S. citizen and a political opponent. In light of the fact that the president asked for an investigation and then only when he was caught released the military aid, is there still a need for impeachment? Yes, ma'am. Impeachment is complete when the president abuses his office and he abuses his office by attempting to abuse his office. There's no distinction there between trying to do it and succeeding in doing it, and that's especially true if you only stop because you got caught. Over 70% of the American people uh, believe, as I said, what the president did was wrong. We have a solemn responsibility to address that, and as well, our fidelity to our oath and our duty. I'm reminded of the men and women who serve in the United States military, and I'm reminded of my three uncles who served in World War II. I can't imagine them being on the battlefield, needing arms and food, and the general says, do me a favor. We know that general would not say, do me a favor. And so in this instance, the American people deserve unfettered leadership, and it is our duty to fairly assess the facts and the Constitution. I yield back my time. So here we've got Sheila Jackson Lee, um, a very pointed congresswoman who is able to really cut through uh, the noise and really get with a very prosecutor-like affect to herself and ask these questions. And so what she's doing is calling back to earlier in the testimony, uh, another witness talked about how the president, if he were immune to impeachment here, would be acting above the law and would be no different from a king. And so she asks, you know, what inferences can we make between kings and what the president is doing today? And she sort of responds by talking about how the president being immune to impeachment again would uh, would mean that there's nothing that we could do to stop him and how there are checks on all of his powers. But she ends it with this really pointed comment that the Constitution says that there are no titles of nobility. So while a president can name his son Baron, he cannot make him a Baron, which is funny. And it really like elicits a laugh from the entire audience at that moment. Um, and so it's a way for her to get her point across, but then also uh, sort of build her likability and her rapport with the audience so that people listening at home can sort of relate in a different way to both her personally, but then also the point that she's making. And so I found that really interesting and kind of funny that she injected that there in that way. And then, of course, Sheila Jackson Lee is able to continue walking through the different elements of that crime. Um, and uh, that, that seems to be the M.O. here of the Democrats, which is we need to spell this out step by step for the American people so that they know why these articles are being drawn. Yeah, what I really like here about 
uh, Miss Jackson Lee's um, comment here that she says is that her speech writing techniques are so good here. And she brings out this very um, sense of we're really going into this kind of regal way or regal minded way of thinking about this. Like we have a solemn responsibility. So she says, I was guided then not only by the facts dot, 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 but by this and think about what she's doing here. I was guided then, you know, first of all, the whole idea of being guided is um, a kind of religious icon in a certain way. And then it's being guided dot 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 not only by the facts but and you notice how when you say a phrase like that it has a built-in cadence it has a built-in rhythm i was guided not only by the facts but this and this and this and then she uses words like charged we are charged with a solemn and sober responsibility and so when she uses this type of very powerful language it of course evokes a certain state in the um, audience or whoever is listening to this, um, you know, perhaps on the news or on C-SPAN or something, that you hear her saying it in such that that kind of uh, big way that it, it just brings out a certain emotional state. And then she goes on, you know, I'm reminded of my three uncles. And I can't help but imagine. Now, did she ask you to imagine it? No. She just told you about her imagination what she was imagining and when she is imagining it well guess what you are not going to have any strong response against it because it's simply what she's imagining you can't argue with that because it's her mind it's her imagination and yet the effect of those words is that it also invites or um, suggests to a person that they too are going to imagine it so i can't help but imagine dot 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 and then she goes on to ask the question, some of which Alex just, you know, broke down for you here. And then she asks Feldman a question. You know, she says, how does this abuse affect the system? And what she's doing here is trying to get people to explain the values behind why ordinary Americans should care about this impeachment inquiry. So it's answering the question of what does this all mean for the ordinary American. So how does this affect the system? She's tying it in from a big idea into now a practical experience, which is important for people because sometimes you got to link things up where they go, okay, now I got it. Now I understand that reality of how this is going to affect me or my life. And then she plays the, the video clip of Lieutenant Colonel Vindeman, and that is showing military support. And so when you have there, you know, the, the Vindman uh, talks and he, you know, you look at the photos of him and he's very much, you know, kind of that um, very stoic in a way, but also, you know, very vulnerably exposed kind of military guy going out on a limb to, you know, risk his career and all of what he has accomplished on in pursuit of the truth. And it's a very powerful icon so you put up a clip of him and what he's saying in this you know selected passage and then it really shows the military support and as she's talking about the military history well all of that is really hard for the republicans to argue with because republicans as a group have to be pro-military 
So arguing with a lieutenant colonel of the armed forces is very difficult to do, especially when she kind of ties in what he said with all the rest of the argument. So it's really fascinating how she's able to connect those dots together that way. All right. I think that's about all the time we've got for today. Head on over to our website at subliminallycorrect.com and check out our Patreon page. You can get there by clicking in the top right corner. And over there, you'll, you can find all of our exclusive content just for friends of the show and people who are supporting us through Patreon. So that's something you don't want to miss. You can also find the link in the show notes. And if you have questions, comments, or things that you're thinking about, you can email us or head on over to Twitter or Facebook and friend us, follow us. Uh, be sure to tweet and like us, send us whatever it is that you're thinking, and uh, we'll be sure to uh, respond or get back to you, maybe even live on the show. And if you tune in next week, you'll hear even more about what the Judiciary Committee has to say to these witnesses and the different ways in which they answer. And it's really interesting because we have some of our favorite clips in the next episode. So you want to make sure you download that and listen to that next week. Talk to you then.